Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Alison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Forestine. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, February 8th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. AI. Apparently, it's a big deal. So we're devoting a podcast episode to it. First, that's Casey Ross joins us to explain the exhaustive reporting on how researchers and pharmaceutical firms are using the technology to identify new targets, design drugs, and improve the efficiency of clinical trials. Then we'll talk to Joel Dudley, a partner at the venture firm Innovation Endeavors, about how to discern promising ideas from wastes of time when it comes to AI and biotech. All that after a word from our sponsor. Hey, Read Out Loud listeners, Bob Herman here, Stats Business of Healthcare reporter and the writer behind the newsletter, Healthcare Inc. Healthcare Inc. is a weekly newsletter devoted to unpacking the business and secret inner workings of the U.S. healthcare industry. If you're someone who has ever received a medical bill or craves in-depth policy explainers or loves a playful meme now and again, I highly recommend you check this newsletter out. Learn more at the link in this episode's description. And now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Thanks. By this point in 2024, we've all heard the breathless predictions that AI is going to revolutionize virtually every aspect of modern life, bringing about, depending on who you ask, a sci-fi utopia or the end of humanity as we know it. All of that hype can make it difficult for those of us normal people to differentiate the very real power of these new technologies from the more absurd stuff you might hear from the world's uh, many would-be tech innovators. And that's especially true in medicine and biotech, where legitimate progress can get overshadowed by futuristic silliness. And that's where stat reporter Casey Ross comes in. Casey has been covering AI's implications for health and medicine for the past few years. And this week, he wrote what was a a sober and instructive story on how the technology is actually impacting the development of new drugs. And he joins us now to talk about it. Casey, I see you are wearing your Apple Vision Pro, as we all are. um, (laughs) And you and we look very cool and not stupid at all. So welcome back to the podcast. I am happily not wearing an Apple Vision Pro. And thank you very much for having me. Casey, I like the idea of you being the futuristic silliness reporter at Stat. That's a that's a good beat. I mean, it's Let's a never it's a it's a never ending font of material. <laughs> <laughs> so, Casey, you know, your story offers a, what I thought was like a more tempered view of AI's role in drug development compared to maybe what we hear from the likes of Nvidia's Jensen Wang, who likes to say that you know AI has kind of totally figured out biology. What did the R and D folks inside pharma tell you about AI's role? Well, I think it was a, definitely a much more measured assessment from from the folks who are actually trying to apply the technology every day. I think there is a lot of excitement because the AI is getting better. Uh, the problem is that in biology, the data isn't necessarily getting better at the same rate that the AI is. So the AI is only as good as the data fed into it. And you're not going to unravel biology when you only know about 5% of what there is to know. So based on your reporting, uh, you write that there's an increasing number of large pharma companies that are trying to build the technology into their businesses and their research processes and these, you know, kind of aforementioned pools of data that they have on hand. Is AI a must-have technology among biopharma companies these days, or are there still holdouts? I think the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, Pretty resoundingly at this point, I think Every company is leveraging AI within its business processes and research. 
to begin to try to uh, make things move faster, uh, to, d- to discover things uh, more rapidly. I think they're, they're adopting the technology at different rates and in different parts of their businesses and organizations. So there certainly is some variation, but I think when you look at it as a whole, all of these companies are using AI and they're adopting it uh, at certainly a greater, um, to a greater degree than they have in the past. So looking at Amgen specifically, you talked to their chief technology officer, David Reese, about how they are using AI to mine a repository of genetic data from people in Iceland. Can you tell us more about what that entails and also, you know, the significance of Amgen naming Reese as its first chief technology officer in the first place? Yeah, so they have this partnership in a lab in Iceland where they're uh, trying to analyze all of the data that they've collected through Decode, which is now an Amgen subsidiary. Amgen bought Decode uh, in uh, 2012, and the the data is uh, now more diverse than um, just a, a, a large group of people from Iceland. It includes a lot of data from the UK Biobank. I don't know how much that actually extends the diversity of the underlying data, but the idea is that they have a ton of data separated across all kinds of different categories from um, you know, the structure and function of proteins to how RNA operates uh, genes uh, to, to genomic uh, data as well. So they've got a huge amount of data and uh, NVIDIA has huge computers and they're using it to rapidly build AI on top of it to analyze all this data. So I guess we'll see that Reese was uh, named chief technology officer, I think is a pretty significant thing organizationally in that you get a sense that his argument, which internally is that AI is likely to be the thing that drives the science forward the fastest and we have to invest, uh, was um, was received well by the chief executive officer and the top management such that that he's in that role now. And Amgen really is taking up the technology aggressively. You also spoke to Novartis uh, about its partnership with Isomorphic, uh, Tina, to use AI for specific drug development projects. Tell us more about that and also some of the research that revealed shortcomings in the use of, you know, supercomputers to design proteins. So AlphaFold is a model that was developed by DeepMind and isomorphic labs. And what it does is it renders proteins at a greater resolution than was previously possible by computer methods. And so Novartis is using all of that data to, within specific therapeutic areas, try to design drugs faster that are likely to be more effective. But when I talked to Novartis about it, and specifically uh, Fiona Marshall, the head of biomedical research at the company, she was basically saying, hey, look, we're going to give this a shot. You know, we're going to look at it and see how well it actually advances the science and whether we get answers in areas we're still struggling to find answers. And so I think that's still a very open question. And some of the research has suggested that maybe this model, which uh, everybody's been sort of fawning over, isn't necessarily going to lead to the kinds of discoveries in the near term that people think it will. When folks at Scripps tested the model and tried to dock um compounds, chemical compounds into it, they had a lot more trouble than they did when they tried to dock compounds into protein models that were rendered using x-ray crystallography and other methods. So uh, so we're not really sure at this point how much, how fast it, this is going to drive things forward and how much better the science is really going to get. 
Can I ask really quickly, Casey, when you say dock a, a compound into the protein, what does that mean and what's the significance of a computer being able to do that versus, you know, real life human biology? Yeah, so this is like computer-aided design. So what they're trying to do is they're looking at the sort of the computer-rendered model of the protein, and they have a chemical compound also modeled, and they're trying to match it up on this sort of molecular level to find out where along the amino, amino acid sequence you might be able to match up a compound to the specific mutation you're trying to target or the specific part of the protein you're trying to target. So all this is done in silico, you know, and then, uh, you know, on the computer, and then you try to actually test it in the wet lab. And sort of that process is moving, you know, faster between the computer and the wet lab than it had in the past because of how good the tech is getting. Well, and in that vein, a lot of people in in the drug industry kind of say that, you know, the, the target discovery stuff is great, protein modeling, awesome, but there's still this very big hurdle that AI faces and the drug discovery industry faces in that clinical trials are still incredibly expensive, really risky and very failure prone. And, you know, that part of their business is critical. Um, can AI do something about that? Yeah, I think it's a really big, I mean, the question I think everybody sort of has to ask when they look at AI and they look at drug discovery is, what does it matter if you do steps one through nine faster and you fall flat on your face still on step 10, <laughs> which is a phase three clinical trial? So it doesn't matter really if, you know, if you sort of get there faster, but then continue to fail. I mean, it does matter in the sense that it saves some time and money. It's not going to cost $2 billion every single time you go through that process. So that's, you know, that's a win. But still, at the end of the day, that trial's got to be successful. And so what they're doing in applying AI there is they're trying to uh, increase and make enrollment faster um, by analyzing the different sites at which the trial is happening to figure out, can we find at this place the right patients that we need for our trial to show efficacy faster than we have in the past? So they're doing that. And then the other thing that they're doing is trying to uh, decrease the size of the control groups by using sort of simulated versions of patients, so-called digital twins, where they render a patient based on its data on the computer and then use that patient as part of a control group so that you don't have to find real patients uh, for that control group, which is, um, you know, it makes it faster and, and less costly and maybe a benefit eventually. But that's still a technology that I'd say, you know, a lot of the companies are, are wondering, is the FDA really going to be cool with that? So one thing that stands out in a lot of your reporting uh, on AI, not only in, in drug development, but, but more broadly, is that to be extremely reductive, which I am happy to be, um, it's kind of just crunching numbers, but really powerfully and at this level that was previously impossible. But on some level, that's kind of what's happening. And as such, the quality of the numbers being fed into the cruncher is integral or determinative to how useful what comes out is. There's a quote in your story um, from one of the researchers at Scripps you mentioned saying, machine learning is very good at learning from what we have, but it's not as good at giving you the answer to something we don't know. And so I wondered, you know, zooming out on all of this as the technology advances and people have these ambitions to put it to the test, is there a focus on improving the kind of like substrate that is fed into it on getting 
different kinds of data, more detailed data to feed into these computers. Because I imagine like the rate limiting step on some level is that we, we don't always know, or, or rather, you know, answering questions about things we don't know is integral to learning new stuff. And thus, we need better information to feed into these machines. Yeah, absolutely. And there is a huge amount of focus on that area right now. Um, so there are a lot of different efforts. Uh, PerturbSeq is the name of one where they're trying to sort of uh, develop better data that could be fed into the AI on exactly how uh, cells are perturbed or how these mutations along the, the sequence of a protein uh, might be altered in a disease state. Like the problem is that AlphaFold can render protein structures in a way that no other model ever could. That doesn't mean it can render them in their diseased state because we don't have the data to, to feed into the AI. But there are a lot of efforts to develop that data to then make the models better. So there's some progress there. I do think it's going to take you know a, a heck of a lot longer than, than people are, are maybe thinking to get there, though. Casey, the real reporter, not an AI-generated one. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. You may know Joel Judley as the former chief scientific officer of the health tech unicorn Tempest. Or if you've been tuned into the biotech ecosystem for a while, you'll know him as part of a research team that conducted one of the few studies of Theranos' blood tests and found problems, to say the least. For the last year and a half, he has been leading the biotech investing team at Innovation Endeavors, the venture capital firm that was co-founded by former Google CEO Eric Schmidt. The firm recently raised $630 million for a new fund, and so what better time to invite Joel on to discuss startup financing, AI, and hype in 2024. Joel, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. So Joel, we all came back uh, from San Francisco talking about artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. uh, your firm wrote in a recent post that, quote, AI is now a critical component in the strategy of every nation and enterprise. Um, I wonder if you can explain what you meant by that. And, and also, how much credit do you think NVIDIA uh, actually should take for that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of, a, a, I guess, an obvious thing. And, and I don't know who, I didn't write that in particular, so I can't take credit for it. But, um, but it, it, it's fairly obvious. And, and I guess to, to jump onto the NVIDIA thing, I mean, I, I, NVIDIA should get a huge amount of credit in terms of um, you know, laying the foundational groundwork of the chips, right? Because all this is possible because of the chips that they develop. I guess it's sort of like if the internet wouldn't be possible if we didn't have all the cable and fiber, you know, and stuff laid first. Um, so it's always a convergence of things. Um, so it's hard, it's hard to give, I guess, any one group credit and sort of a convergence phenomenon. But obviously, NVIDIA is critical. And honestly, and honestly, if you want to go back far enough, give give uh, video gamers credit, right? Because <laughs> if it wasn't for video games demanding the GPUs get faster and faster and faster, right? Like NVIDIA wouldn't be where it is with that technology. So it's like, that's what's fun about convergent stories, right? It's like these things are so organic and unpredictable. What I would encourage people to think about going forward is, you know, there's all these like near-term, like low-hanging fruit use cases for AI, which we've seen. It's like, oh, like come up with new molecules, come up with new antibodies, you know? Um, but I think that's kind of the boring first wave of the of like AI because they're like the obvious applications like everybody kind of rushes towards. But I think honestly, what I get more excited about is some of the more potentially uh, boring applications of AI that I think would actually move the needle, right? So like you think of things like manufacturing, like if you look at like how cell therapies are manufactured or even um, 
um, other types of, of manufacturing that happens in pharma. It's pretty archaic the way that they use things like mass spec. If you look at the regulatory side of, of pharma, like we just invested in a company called uh, Weave I'm really excited about that's using generative AI for IND filings. And you think, oh, IND filings, how can that be a, a sexy application of AI? But the way IND filings work right now in pharma is everybody dumps all their random PDFs in a uh, SharePoint folder. And, and then they have to dedicate weeks and weeks and weeks of like collating PDFs, copying and pasting from PDFs and submitting it to um, uh, the regulatory agencies. And that actually significantly creates friction in the drug discovery process, right? So like, that's where I get personally excited about applications of AI. It's not necessarily the, the generative protein design. It's like, oh, how do we speed up regulatory filings? And I think that'll actually uh, move the needle in ways people don't appreciate. I was curious on that subject, um, beyond your affinity for the the potentially boring applications of AI, yeah, yeah. from the outside, it can often look like, like we understand uh, or at least uh, from the outside, we understand the potential for, for any given new technology and AI particularly, but the way it gets described in drug discovery or any aspect in biotech often feels like kind of a black box. Like you're told that lots of information goes in and a supercomputer helps process it. And then whether it's a drug or a new idea comes out the other end, it can be very difficult externally to discern really what the AI did, what the machine learning program did, and what was just human labor that was maybe uh, helped by these technologies. So on the investor side, when you're due diligence in these operations or these potential investments, how do you tease apart what is an actually novel and interesting application of the technology and what is just the two letters AI slapped onto something that already existed? Yeah, it's a, it's a great example. And I could talk about this for hours, but it's like, I think really applying AI in ways uh, where it really um, sort of uniquely excels, right? So I think one of the more exciting Areas of AI, as like everybody's familiar with, like obviously, you know, ChatGPT and the initial application to large language models, just purely on text. But I think it's the where it gets really interesting is for me is some of the multimodal AI, right? Being able to learn across different domains of data, like um, you know, learn from images and project into text space, or learn from text space and project into imaging space. And there are actually, you know, some pretty interesting uses of that in in drug discovery, because one of the areas I'm most excited about, or the way the way I think about applications of AI is, you know, we're not we're not trying to fill the top of the funnel with more crap to test, you know, more molecules, more proteins. What we're trying to do overall is improve the probability of translational success into the clinic, right? And what that means is sort of stepping back, which is hard for a lot of people, because a lot of people are coming from computer science and pure tech backgrounds, and they don't really holistically understand the drug discovery process and about clinical trials and and actual patients in the real world. And, you know, we invested in a company called Character Biosciences, for example, that's got uh, genomic sequencing data on a bunch of ocular disease patients, but they have longitudinal clinical data, eye, eye imaging data um, from actual patients in the wild and even stem cells from these patients that, um, that um, you know, they can use to, to do preclinical testing of their discoveries. So the sort of closed loop of like learning from a real world population and testing in that same population via their stem cells. But the problem is like the way that we've traditionally analyzed these different types of data is like piecemeal, right? It's like you analyze the genetic data, then you analyze the clinical data, then you analyze the cell data. You kind of piece by piece and then you try to like draw inferences across the data modalities you you analyzed individually because it's just harder for humans to like holistically analyze that much data. Um, so multimodal AI is a great example there where it can actually simultaneously learn patterns across all those modalities and then you know, draw inferences um, sort of holistically across that data, for example, to, to discover new drug targets. But in the end, 
I think the key thing is like, you, you still have to be able to explain the biology that you're discovering. Cause that's what everybody in pharma wants to know is like, what is the actual biology you're discovering and targeting? And for that, there's still some gaps in, in AI, right? Like large language models can't you know, easily explain how they come up with things. Um, there's new types of AI called neurosymbolic AI that makes it a bit easier to sort of explain um, what's being found uh, in, in the in the patterns and the data. So um, there's actually still a lot of foundational, like, you know, algorithmic work that needs to be done here. Sorry, I went on a long tangent there. <laughs> no, that was really, really fascinating. And it's uh, the intricacies of how AI is being used I think still aren't discussed enough. Um, kind of like beyond like the to get deeper than like what you're hearing from the the startup side of things. You know, I, I just wrote a, an article about the the difficulties of VC fundraising, and on the outside investor side, I was hearing that AI, like the the fusion of tech and biology, was one thing that investors were really. Uh, grabbing onto is something that made it easier to kind of raise funds in this kind of environment. What has your experience been on kind of the other side of interactions that you guys have at Innovation Endeavors when you're talking to people, you know, from outside of the biotech world and trying to raise money from them and what, trying to figure out what they are most interested in investing in? Yeah, so if I understand correctly, you're talking about some like some of the pure tech people that are investing in this space. Am I understanding correctly? I would love or? to hear your opinion on yeah the the pure tech people that are coming into the biotech space, but then also just you know broadly all of the you know the hedge funds, the pension funds, you know uh, ah. the family offices that you guys are raising money from. Yeah, no, I, I mean I think um, we see ourselves playing a pretty important role. I think in in the ecosystem because on one hand we're very conversant in the pure tech side of things. But on the other hand, with myself and some other folks on the team, we have deep life science um, expertise. So I think we're unique in that we appreciate and understand the technology deeply, but not to the point where we're only infatuated with the technology. And we also understand that you actually have to get biological proof of that technology like pretty early on to attract life science investors. So I think that's been a fun niche. In fact, we have other investors coming to us wanting to sort of serve as that bridge of like, hey, we're a pure biotech investor. We like AI, but we don't understand it enough, <laughs> you know, to be judicious in how we invest in it. Same with the technology side. Hey, we love, you know, AI applied to healthcare, but, you know, we start to um, get out of our depth on the biology side. So, you know, could you co-invest with us? Because you seem to, to be deep uh, on both sides. But I, I think more broadly, I, I think when we were raising money from LPs, I think there's really enthousi enthusiasm uh, for this particular space. I think it was brought up by many LPs that, you know, well, obviously, the LP's got to focus on returns and, and you know, there's great <laughs> low risk places to put your money to get returns in the current environment, but that they really were motivated to deploy capital to to um, uh, move the needle in, in this space. I mean, it's just, um, you know, obviously, whatever whatever the market's doing now, there's still so many unmet, unmet needs, right, clinically that I think people just appreciate. And, you know, th there's a strong belief that the technology will get us there faster because ultimately, you know, what we're doing here is just what you're trying to do is you're searching a solution space, right? If, if you think about it in, in the lowest level, right? And biology just has a very complicated solution space to search that's almost infinite in size. And that's technology just helps to search that solution space much faster as it has in other uh, domains. So do you think the drug industry at large uh, is appropriately prepared to vet AI companies these days? Like what's their level of sophistication? 
I would say <laughs> probably not. Um, and it's not that they don't have good people um, to do it um, uh, internally. Like obviously some firms have, have world-class people uh, in AI. Uh, Merck is, is, is one of these that jumps to mind. Uh, There's a, a woman named Aya Khalil who's amazing, who you guys should talk to if you haven't. <laughs> but, you know, they're, they're busy with their own internal projects um, for sure. Um, and they sort of get brought in ad hoc to evaluating external opportunities. And, and then frankly, th those individuals can even pose a problem, right? Because one of the biggest problems you have in trying to bring new technology into a pharma is the not invented here syndrome, right? Where it's, uh, it, it's extremely frustrating um, if, you're, if you're a company trying to do a deal with a bigger pharma. What's that syndrome? Can you explain for readers? Not, not invented here syndrome. It's where you have uh, a talented people on, in the pharma, technically talented people, who either are working something on something similar to what the startup is doing or the, the external company or aspire to work on something <laughs> that the external company and even have the ability to do it, but simply don't have the bandwidth. Right. So because they're working on a bunch of other projects. So what happens often is, um, you know, it's not that they feel threatened. It's just that they'll say, oh, well, you know, we could do that. You know, well, you, you, you could, but you, know, you have 30 other things that your bosses <laughs> told you to work on. Before this, and this company is 100% only dedicated on this problem, right? So, but I, I think there's a that's a lot of the politics that comes into play, um, you know, when, when some of these internal teams meet external technologies. It's not unique uh, to the pharma industry by any means, but I think uh, uh, it's, it's a big problem in terms of adopting external innovation. But, you know, the, the, the fact is, like, these farmers can have to acquire external innovation. I mean, they just can't keep up. Like, the pace of innovation outside of big pharmas is only accelerating um and um you know and the share of blockbuster drugs that are being acquired you know from outside the company it just keeps growing so it's just you know they're just gonna have to acquire, acquire companies but they need help and and we can help the, the large pharmas too <laughs> evaluate those opportunities the signal to noise in this space is unbelievably bad right i mean there's so much noise um i can't imagine you know if you're head of external innovation or cso of a large pharma you must be getting bombarded with you know, 20, 30 new AI startup opportunities a week. And how do you sort through those? I have no idea um, if you're one of those folks. Well, speaking of that noise, I mean, a big part of your job is to find kind of dislocations in value to invest in something that whose future value will be greater than what it's valued at now. But by contrast, you are constantly seeing things where you make the opposite conclusion, that its present value uh, probably outstrips what its future value is. So what do you see, well, like, what seems overhyped to you, whether it's applications of AI or outside of AI, things that are getting attention in biotech right now that lead you to raise an eyebrow? And Grant, I know this question is a little uh, yeah. awkwardly timed because so many valuations are down. But even still, yeah. um, as you look out into the world, what what's curious? I, I think people get overly infatuated with like methods and algorithms and AI models. Um, you know, that can do things like a lot of like a lot of startups will come with like AI models trained on UK Biobank which everybody has access to the UK biobank or trained on a public data sets. And not that that's not useful. It's just that I think like, like we're seeing in the large language model space, the models themselves become commodities, um, the general models. Um, and I think the same thing's true in biology. I think we will have various foundation models for single cell analysis, for sequence analysis, and they'll largely become commodities. And really the value as it was in sort of the previous uh, um, you know, ways of tech and, 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 and even biotech is that, that proprietary data generation is, is, is really key. And especially if you can have algorithms in the loop, 
with proprietary data generation. You know, being able to finally train models on proprietary data sets, I think that's where a lot of the value will be. So, um, you know, companies that just have claim to have the best, you know, AI model for XYZ, protein design, antibody design, whatever, trained on public data, I think those aren't very valuable personally. And I see a lot of them. So Joe, uh, I don't know, maybe a big picture question. Do you think we'll ever reach a time when AI figures out biology? And, and if that does happen, how scared should we be? <laughs> um, I don't think we should be scared. Um, you know, I'm more of like on the Mark Andreessen side of the world <laughs> of, of AI. So take, take that for what it is. Um, <clears throat> I, I think for sure, I don't, I don't think we have, I think that's why we should still continue, despite my previous comment, we should develop, continue methodological development. Because I think, yeah, I have friends who are like scared of, they see use chat GPT and they're like, oh my God, we're like one step away from generalized AI. And then I'm like, let me sit down with chat GPT. T take any scientist, any PhD scientist you know, and they can make chat GPT look like a moron in like three seconds because <laughs> it's because it's very bad at reasoning, like very bad at reasoning um, and logical reasoning and deduction, um, which is what we need in, you know, biological discovery. Um, but that being said, people are aware of this problem. And I mentioned there's a field of research called neurosymbolic AI. It's actually what the company in our portfolio Weave uses, because when you're making INDs using generative AI, you can't hallucinate results <laughs> from your studies, right? You actually have to make sure that your results are exactly represented as they were in the original study. So they actually pioneered a really interesting neurosymbolic AI to ensure the hallucinations are, are don't happen. Um, and then there's like Bayesian reasoning that will be added with ALM. So anyway, LLMs. So the, anyway, so, so there's methodological development that has to happen, but I think it will happen. I think it will happen. And then, um, yeah, I, I don't think we should be scared. I think, um, um, I think you should be excited, you know. All right, I'm going to reserve judgment on yeah, that. Yeah, though. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't, okay. I yeah. personally would love to see the FDA just like tear into an IND filing done by ChatGPT. Yeah. That would be a field day for me. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the, 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 idea of, the idea of hallucinations is a little bit, um, I don't know, that's a little worrisome, honestly. Well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So hopefully people aren't using ChatGPT for IND findings because it won't work. Um, this is what, you know, why we've started, the, you know, came up with our innovations is because, you know, the current state of LLMs will not work. They will hallucinate. You know, you need you need this kind of neurosymbolic AI and traceability and and, and things like that because we won't, we won't have one AI that solves biology. We'll have, we'll have a whole hopefully, unless regulators get crazy, we'll have a whole community of AIs. You know, that will be solving biology, right? So, it's a it, you know, I think worst case scenario, it's like I'll give you something to think about, but it's like uh, what's a Diamond Age Neil Stephenson book, right? Where they they had the um, the terrorists created these little nanobots that could evolve and release them into the world. Mm. But then the good guy scientists created these like antibody nanobots that would fight. And then what ended up happening is they ended up going into an evolutionary stalemate for eternity. It's because whenever the, <laughs> the terrorist nanobots would evolve, the good guy nanobots would evolve just as fast. So, um, you know, and then they just all died and fell out of the sky. And then you'd get like this black dust on your skin from the nanobots trying to kill each other. So... <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave you with that. I'll leave you with that thought. <laughs> wow. And on and that, on that note. note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Joel, thank you for uh, coming onto the podcast and um, yeah, just really creating so many uh, possibilities in my mind about our potential future and our uh, potential robot overlords. <laughs> yeah, see. Yeah. I'm sure my, our comms people at Innovation Never is going to love that one. I so. hope they do. <laughs>
(laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Jill, for joining us. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like. And tell us about the proteins you're making on your uh, at-home supercomputer. <laughs> you can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.